tonight. It's an honor. It is an honor for a son to welcome his parents into his home, into his work, and into his life as an adult, as I was uh, so honored to do with my own parents just a couple months ago, or less than a month ago at Pascha at Easter. It is even a greater honor for a son to welcome a spiritual father in his life. And countless Christendom students will look to Dr. O'Donnell in their life and have looked to Dr. O'Donnell as a true spiritual father. And I uh, am honored to count myself among them. I would say that um, a handful of people have been really instrumental in my keeping the faith and moving onward with my journey. And Dr. O'Donnell has honestly been one of them. Among all the speakers that we have had at St. John's, including Father Groeschel, um, all of our many speakers, I would say is truly the greatest joy to have Dr. O'Donnell here with us tonight, more than it was for me last time. Because it's one thing to be honored once to come and see where your spiritual son is working and where his life has led him. It's even a greater honor to have that a second time. The father of nine children, the grandfather of two, and member of the Pontifical Council for the Family, it is an honor for me to welcome Dr. Timothy O'Donnell. Did you always try to get me to cry? Thank you so much for the, the gracious introduction. Wow, I'm just kind of overwhelmed. Uh, it is, it's great to be with you uh, this evening. An honor to be back here at St. John the Beloved. I love this place. I love the spirit that animates this place. You've had such a wonderful succession of pastors here. And uh, I think that uh, what Sabatino is doing here is very important. And I'd like to commend all of you. I don't know how many parishes there are where this many people would show up. You know, on a, it is a weeknight, isn't it? <laughs> it's Tuesday. It must be Belgium, right? But uh, it is important, uh, the topic this evening, talking about the family, path the peace, talk a little bit about Pope Benedict's thought, but in a special way, one of the things that I really like to emphasize, whenever we talk about family, the heart of peace, and things like that, is to really focus upon the family as a domestic church, because that's one of the terms uh, that is enshrined in our Catholic teaching and tradition, but you just don't hear much about that. And so I would like to spend some time talking about that tonight. And also our Holy Father, our Christian Holy Father, has talked about the importance of a hermeneutic of continuity. So many times there was an effort in the chaotic 60s and 70s to try to have a break or a rupture between early church teaching and contemporary church teaching, as if the whole of church history was divided artificially into B.C. and P.C., before the council and then after the council, which is not really true, and that the council should be seen in continuity with what went before. And you have some people now trying to show as if there's a break between Pope Benedict and Pope John Paul II, and that's absolutely not true. I remember I heard two women, uh, they were interviewing at the secular media, sort of gushing after the Pope uh, just recently addressed uh, everybody at the United Nations. 
and they were gushing and saying, you know, Pope John Paul II, he just spoke to the church, but Benedict, he speaks to the global community. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> what? I mean, I mean, uh, total nonsense, total nonsense. But uh, the remarks I'm making this evening, I would like to dedicate with great fondness to a great churchman who has just passed on, Cardinal Lopez Trujillo, uh, who was head of the Pontifical Council of Family, that's the council that we are members of, uh, just died on Saturday, the anniversary of the Pope's election. And uh, he was a great churchman, a man who fought very courageously for all of the things that we hold dear in the faith, especially for marriage and for the family. Uh, he had been a boxer early in his life, down in, down in Colombia, uh, but really had the faith deeply in his bones, deeply in his heart, and uh, as a matter of fact, he was so courageous in speaking out in Colombia against the drug cartels and against human trafficking that there were over 30 threats to his life. And one of the reasons he got the assignment in Rome was to basically get him out of Colombia. And so in a certain way, it's really beautiful that he just had, was failed slowly and died a natural death in Rome, so they didn't get him, which was, which was sort of great. But uh, he was a wonderful man. We had... Uh, we were fortunate to have meals with him, dinner with him a couple times, lunch, and he'll be sorely missed, but uh, really love the family, and he really made this his life's work. And one of the things that was very close to his heart was the notion of domestic church, and I'd really like to sort of focus on that as sort of the key theme. And of course, the late Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, made that a focus of his teaching. And again, there's a fundamental continuity. Pope Benedict XVI, during, particularly during his trip to Valencia, when he went for the world gathering of the families, but continues to speak about the family all the time. We just got back, and I'll share a little bit with you from a trip over to Rome. They had the plenary meeting of the plenary council of the family. Unfortunately, the cardinal was too sick to actually attend, and now we know it was a sickness unto death. Very saddened by that. But at the end, we were able to meet with uh, Pope Benedict, and Pope Benedict came down and visited with us and gave a stirring a sort of talk, which had been published in L'Osservatore Romano. Uh, but one of the themes that, we, that was really touched upon in this conference was the important role of grandparents. How many of your grandparents? Okay, you've got a crucial, you're not sure? Okay, that, that's fine, that's fine. All right. So anyway, we'll talk a little bit about that towards the end and some of the things that were said, which I think you will find of great interest. But the central role of the family is something that's very much on the mind of the church. As a matter of fact, Pope Benedict XVI recently stated when talking about the family, and I give you a quote, to proclaim the whole truth about, oh, you know what? We should pray. Well, we are getting our Father. That covers this, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> to proclaim the whole truth about the family based on marriage as a domestic church and a sanctuary of life is a great responsibility incumbent upon all. Everybody. You know who that means? You, you, you know, everybody here tonight has an obligation to proclaim the whole truth about the family, especially based upon marriage as a domestic church. Now, how many of you had heard that term before, domestic church? How many have never heard domestic church before? Be honest. 
okay, significant number of you. So obviously, <laughs> if it's a responsibility incumbent upon everybody, then I better talk about it so that you can go out and talk. Joe, how are you? So you, oh my gosh. <laughs> Some things never change. This is the way it was at Christendom. <laughs> He's so smart, it didn't really bother him. <laughs> okay. Better show him what time when he gives talks here. <laughs> so I would like to make this sort of a focal point. Was that a question? Yes. Do you mean uh, everybody, including unmarried people? Yes. Yes, everyone has a responsibility to talk about this. Because the domestic church is, one of, is really the key to understanding the church's vision of the family. Especially in today's world where everything has become so secularized, where we can't even agree on definition of what marriage is, you know, which shows you how far we really have fallen. Um, now, what remains the most important work uh, on marriage and the family was the church's document, Familiaris Consortio, which is like a little summa of the family. And you can get that from the Daughters of St. Paul. I'm sure Sabatino could get that for you. But it's a wonderful thing. If you're wondering, what can I do as a parent? What can I do as a grandparent? What would my role be? Sabatino can get it, but I guess Mary Beth Reardon. <laughs> do you have it? Do you keep it in stock? You do? Well, you're not far from the kingdom. <laughs> Handmaiden of the Pope, right there. All right. Do you still all have Benedict on the mind? Yeah. I mean, wasn't that incredible? What, what an absolute triumph that was in so many ways. And I'll never forget, although I did not hear uh, the president's address, I still have ringing my ears, Dick Cheney's farewell. I don't think you saw that. It was unbelievable. I never thought I'd hear a vice president of the United States talk about the honor of having the Pope celebrate the Eucharist here at yeah. Eucharist. Actually, not just mentioning God, but mentioning Jesus Christ. In an, in an official text, it was wonderful. Uh, I'm sure it'll all come out eventually in the observatory, but it's really worth reading because of whatever sort of vestiges. Remember, it was a conference where we were going to have an ambassador to the Vatican? That's all gone now. You can't have the president and the vice president, so many people speak this way. And so it is a great opportunity. Things that maybe just a generation ago would be a thought impossible are actually happening now. So I think uh, Father Neuhaus' notion of the Catholic moment, it's not a Catholic moment, every moment is the Catholic moment, but this is sort of like the Catholic time period. Because the bankruptcy of secular humanism is so manifest, it doesn't work. Man without God falls into the most horrible type of depravity, and that's what we're seeing today. So it's a great opportunity to bear witness to our faith. But that ancient title, Ecclesia Domestica, the domestic church, was something that Vatican II spoke about in Lumen Gentium, Gaudium in Spes. Some of you, I'm sure most of you have the Catechism of the Catholic Church, right? Yes. You know where to go if you don't have one. Uh -huh. <laughs> Um, but in part two, numbers 1655 to 1658, go back and read it. It's all about the family as a domestic church. Because everything we want to talk about the family, in its priestly role, its prophetic role, its kingly role, all go back to this fundamental position of the family as a domestic church. 
And we live in an age in which we have to restate the obvious. We were just blessed with that Cardinal Lorenzo with us out of Christendom College. And he is such a man, brilliant man, but he has this wonderful Nigerian ability to think, bring things down to great simplicity. He has to hear something very complex and he says, it is like the man who eats a chicken for dinner. And then he'll go on, on this, this complex theology and he brings it down to the most basic fundamental thing. And as he was always fond of saying, the one thing we know about common sense is it is not very common. <laughs> you know? and, that's, and, and isn't that true? We live in a time when we've got to go back and restate the obvious because we've lost our sense about the obvious. John Paul II used to state bluntly that civilization itself depends upon the family. Okay? If you don't have a sound family, you're not going to have a sound civilization. And there are all sorts of alarming signs pointing to a moral crisis, even in terms of defining what a family is. We're sort of like civil unions are the same thing as a family. And the Boston Archdiocese, you know, which has had a wonderful adoption program for about 150 years, now has to give that up because of what the state of Massachusetts has said. If you will not give children to uh, couples who are homosexual, then you can't be in the business anymore. So rather than compromise Catholic teaching, Cardinal Sean O'Malley got said, we're closing our doors. We're not going to, it's sad, but we're going to close Did our doors. Did we just say that Where? What? Did we just say Massachusetts. I'm always happy when Massachusetts beats California, but I don't mean, I don't mean that really. But no, it's a, hor it's a horrible travesty. And now we're going even further. It did get a lot of press coverage, but they now are ready to pass a bill on what they call cross-dressing for transgender people and all this, that now that this is a special right that they have to. And uh, we keep finding more and more rights all the time. But anyway, in Familius Consortio, there's a very puzzling exhortation in which the Pope writes, and he says, family, become what you are. Now, if you look a little puzzled, I am too. That's sort of weird. How can something become what it is? All right. And I think what he's saying there, the grace of the sacrament is present. The grace of the magisterium's teaching on sacral marriage, <coughs> sacramental marriage is there, but they're lying dormant, they're unused so often. In many instances, there's been a failure to realize these fundamental truths about the family. And oftentimes, sadly, the failure has been oftentimes on the part of the church as a teaching organization, particularly in this country, where there hasn't been a strong emphasis upon the primacy of grace. But, as the Second Vatican Council taught us, and our late Holy Father taught us, modern culture must be led to a more profoundly restored covenant with divine wisdom. In other words, there's been a huge divide, a wedge, between faith and culture. And I happened to be uh, with Benedict XVI with that meeting with college presidents that took place at Catholic. One of the powerful things he said is this secular culture is trying constantly to drive a wedge between faith and truth. Isn't that true? Faith becomes something that is purely subjective, a matter of personal taste or whim, as opposed to the truth which God himself reveals to us for our salvation. So this bringing back culture to a covenant with divine wisdom is very important. We need to look at what God's plan, what his design is for marriage. 
and so this is very crucial for us. In the compendium of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which Pope Venice, Benedict XVI promulgated, in number 350, if you want to go back and look at your compendium, look up number 350, I'll give you the quote. And it shows you how important this theme is for him. It reads as follows. The Christian family is called the domestic church because the family manifests and lives out the communal and familiar nature of the church as the family of God. Each family member, in accord with their own role, exercises the baptismal priesthood and contributes towards making the family a community of grace and of prayer, a school of human and Christian virtue, the place where the faith is first proclaimed to children. So everyone in the family has a role. Just as in the church, there is a head, there is a heart, there's arms, legs, feet, everything else that you have in the mystical body. The same thing is true in the family, although it is a church in miniature. The problem is this concept of the church as being a domestic church within the context of the family, and that everyone within the family having a certain role to play in teaching virtue and in teaching the faith. The problem is this is seldom communicated in our pre-Cana conferences. And there has been a real secularization of this great sacrament. We have to remind ourselves repeatedly, marriage is a sacrament. It's one of the magnificent seven. And if we don't remind ourselves of that fact that it is a great sacrament, which is what? Outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. grace. So marriage is grace for the spouses. It's grace for the children that are brought into that sacred union. And there are mutual responsibilities and roles that are to be played. But even if you go back to a pagan like Plato, I would submit to you Plato had a more elevated sense of the dignity of marriage than most sort of Christian couples in our country today. And that's sad. That's really sad. Listen to what Plato said about marriage. He said, marriage is, quote, the need that every man feels of clinging to the eternal life of nature by leaving behind him children's children who may minister to the gods in his stead. Isn't that interesting? Do you notice that he talks about eternal life? He talks about children, that marriage is related to procreation. And one of the primary reasons you have children is that those children may minister to the gods in his stead. The problem is we're living in a post-Christian age and we've become blind to so many of these things. I don't know if any of you saw the beautiful catechesis moment that Benedict XVI had with the Rome children receiving their first Holy Communion. It was spontaneous. There was no prepared text. And these little kids came up, and one little kid came up to the microphone, I'm ready to receive Jesus, but you know what? You can't really see him. You know? And he's sort of, sort of frustrated. And so the Pope, the Pope laughed. I never see the Pope He sort of laughed. He says, you know, that's a very good point. But there are many things that we cannot see. We cannot see our reason. Yet we can think and we know that it is there. We cannot see our will, and yet we know that we will things. This microphone that I'm using right now, you cannot see the current of electricity, but it's there. The most important things in life we can't see with our eyes, but they are real. Isn't that beautiful? 
Same thing in the sacrament of marriage. The grace is there. The grace is there through that sacrament. And just because we can't see it or the world doesn't talk about it doesn't mean that it's not there. And we need to go back to that vision to understand how important it is. <coughs> Plato really talked about the importance of children and raising them up that they may come to worship the God. That's four centuries before Jesus Christ. Christians today need to build on that natural foundation and recognize we too, if God gives us the grace of children, are to have those children and bring them up. Why? The greatest thing they can do is have faith, believe in God, and worship in God. Get them tied into the mass. Get them tied into the sacraments that they can worship properly so that the family becomes a church in miniature, in the home as well as in the parish. Now, one of the big things that is a real problem is that because of the me generation, the baby boomer generation, my generation, so I can do mea culpa, is that we have forgotten our children. A generation ago, 80% of the children grew up in families with both biological parents, 80%. That was, of course, expected. Today, in the United States of America, fewer than half will have both biological parents in the home. Fewer than half. We're down to like 47%. Everywhere, there is widespread signs of selfishness. And of course, when you begin to look at the correlation between divorce rates and crime rates, sociological analysis telling us when you move away from the whole truth about the family and marriage, you're setting yourself up for social disaster, chaos, and disintegration. And we're starting to learn this now. Sociology is telling us this, but you wonder, is it too late? Well, of course, it's never too late because we're sin-abounded. Grace is more about. So grace is always out there, but we need to open our hearts to the truth and submit to the truth. We Americans don't like that language, the obedience of faith, submission to the truth. But that's absolutely true what it is because it's in the submission, it's in the obedience that you find your freedom. That was the essence of Benedict's message when he came here. It is obeying, it is in submission that we find the freedom. It's when we rebel against the truth and will not submit, we lose our freedom and we really become enslaved. You know, Blessed Mother Teresa of Calcutta, there was a great moment when she spoke at the National Prayer Breakfast. You might remember that. That was back when President Clinton. But the quote has stayed with me. I would like to share with you. Where she was reflecting, she says, listen to what she says. I was surprised in the West to see so many boys and girls given to drugs. And I tried to find out why. Why is it like that when those in the West have so many more things than those in the East? And the answer was, this is what she says, because there was no one in the family to receive them. She continued, our children depend on us for everything, their health, their nutrition, their security. They're coming to know and love God. For all this, they look to us with trust, hope, and expectation. But often father and mother are so busy that they have no time for their children, or perhaps they're not even married, or have given up on marriage. So the children go to the streets, get involved in drugs and other things. We are talking about the love of the child, which is where love and peace must begin. And for this, I appeal in India, and I appeal everywhere. Let us bring back the child. The child is God's gift to the family. Each child is created in a special image and likeness of God for greater things, to love and to be loved. Isn't that beautiful? That's why she's a beata, right? Hopefully it will soon be canonized. 
But the notion of the family as a domestic church is so important for us to reflect upon. And if you look at the, that term, the church in miniature, the importance of the family should not surprise us at all. Because if you look at Jesus Christ uh, and his life, all of that becomes manifest. Well, the first thing that we should notice is a great quote. I've used it in this setting before. Hopefully it sounds familiar to some of you here. In the fullness of time, God sent his son. Does anyone can finish that? God sent his son born of a woman. Born of a woman. In other words, when God chooses to enter into time, he does so through a woman who is married. He comes into a family. All right? He doesn't have to do that, right? There are many ways that God could have come and entered into our world. But he comes in and enters in through a family. And our religion is one of intimate domesticity. Just think for a second. Our Lord is on the earth for 33 years. Where did he spend 30 of them? With his mom in Nazareth at home. What does that tell us? It's sort of screaming at us if we step back and think. Family is really important. Human labor is very important. All right? But the family is very, very important. Only three of his years were spent in public ministry. Everything else was spent in that sanctuary with the family. So much so that when he starts his public ministry, they'll say, isn't this Joseph's son? You know, isn't this the son of the carpenter? Are not his brethren with us still? They can't believe it. But that shows you how much time he spent with the members of his family. And of course, what else do we hear? St. Luke tells us those little things in his infancy narrative. Every year, where did that family go? They went to Jerusalem every year for Passover. They were very devout. God was absolutely central to everything that they would do. So they went every year to celebrate Passover. In the life of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, there was a passion for God, a passion for his worship. And throughout his public ministry, how many times did he show attention to the family? How many times did he reach out and embrace children? This is something that I passage that we read all the time. We all hear about it, but we don't think about it. Remember, there's all these women bringing their kids, their babies to Jesus. Why? The apostles try to push him back. Don't do this. Don't do this. And he stops them and says, let them come forth for such is the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember that passage? In other words, what does that tell us about Jesus? There was a paternal heart. There was an approachability. Rabbis were not going around hugging and kissing babies. They had the little rabbinical schools where they were doing their teaching and everything. But there was an accessibility. There was an approachability about Jesus. And he broke with the tradition. He wasn't just a marginal Jew. He just wasn't a first century rabbi. There was something fundamentally different. And that mothers wanted to bring their children. I think it's one of the reasons why the popes are always so accessible. I remember we were living in Rome. We used our daughter calling this Pope Bait. I mean, he just sort of hang your daughter out. I mean, it was like a magnet. If you got a baby in a papal audience, get around that person because you know he's going to come and see the baby. But it's 
it's a, it is absolutely true. So it doesn't, it shouldn't really surprise us that he really rebuked them. And remember, even when he comes into Jerusalem, it's the voices of the little children that make the sweet hosannas ring. And he says, you can't silence them. If you do, even the stones will shout out. And he defends them. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, thou hast perfected praise. He loved children. He loved families. Think how many parents brought sick children. Think how many times there were young sons who was possessed or had some problem. And he would always reach out to heal those, whether it was demons, whether it was a physical problem, whatever the case might be. How often he tried to reach out and help families. Think probably his most beautiful parable. We can argue in a great seminar what's the greatest of the parables. But the prodigal son, a wounded relationship, the father and the son. Is there anything more beautiful than that? You sometimes wonder how often that, you know, put a ring on his finger, how many times that son after that must have held and looked at that finger in the evening sunlight, you know, and just looked at that as the sun's going down and thought, my father loves me. I have a heritage. I have a dignity. All right? But that's the great story that he tells us, all right? And the beautiful healing, the restoration, but not just between the father and son, but also between the brother, right? My son, all that I have is yours, all right? We don't know what the son, we have to be believe that the father eventually brought the brothers back together again. But it was all about restoration of relationship within the context of a family. And then, of course, remember there's that great scene, how much he loved Lazarus, Martha, and Mary used to stay at their home. Do you sometimes wish you knew more about what that was like when they're hanging out together and Martha's busy cooking? Did Mary always sit there and never do anything? You know, I still kind of feel sorry for Martha. You know, you're not supposed to be anxious, but anyway. It was such a beautiful, it was such a beautiful thing. And he obviously felt very comfortable. After the tension of Jerusalem, he would go up over the Mount of Olives. Their house is just on the other side. You can visit. And he would stay there in a place where he could relax, could be calm, could be himself. So a deep and abiding love for the family. Now, of course, St. Paul picks this up. I'm so happy. One of the great things Benedict is doing is this is his first, you know, John Paul every other year was a feast for a year, right? You know, year of the Rosary, year of the Eucharist, a Jubilee year, year of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you know. You know, every year, I mean, he loves the celebration. Well, Pope Benedict's going to have his big celebration now. What is he called? The Pauline year. This coming year, starting at the end of, end of June, from 2008 to 2009, is going to be the year of St. Paul. It'll be an exciting time for pilgrimage, because I finally got to St. Paul's Basilica, where they've done new excavations. You know, they've actually found Paul's sarcophagus, and they've actually cleared it out. Just like you can go into the Scavi under St. Peter's, you can't go into the Scavi now, but right now, they've opened the confessio, you know, right under the main altar, and you can go down, and it's all glass now, and you can actually look down and see the actual burial site. And they have the sarcophagus with his name on it, and there's a little hole in the top where they used to drop down handkerchiefs for relics, all right? To touch the bones and then bring back to heal and help pray. But you can actually see that now. So I, I'm pretty convinced that during that year there'll be more extensive excavations to make it even more accessible to the pilgrims. I'm sure will flock there. 
But a lot of times people neglect St. Paul because he's considered not politically correct. Uh, Ephesians 5, remember the great passage where he says, wives be submissive to your husbands and everyone, you know, it's the great, when they read it on Sunday, you know, the husbands are going, and then it says, husbands love your wives and the wives are going, and then the kids are waiting for the don't nag your children. So you get all of these things sort of going back and forth, and but it's very important, but remember the very beginning he says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Before anything else, there is a mutual subjection. For the Christian, it's not about who's on top and who's below. We are here to serve one another. The husband is here to serve the wife. The wife is there to serve the husband. That's what the discussion should be all about. And of course, as our Lord said, it's in service that we rule. Right? Remember what's one of the greatest titles of the popes? Servant of the servants of God. Who would want to be pope, really? I mean, just the constant giving of yourself, being poured out in libation. But of course, a number of these things are important. Where he, after he says, be subject to one another, it's only after that he says, let wives be subject to their husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, being himself the savior of the body. So he's telling us that the family and the structure of the family mirrors what? The relation between Christ and the church, right? Already we're being pointed to the, the family as a domestic church. Now it is interesting that after he tells the wives to be submissive to their husbands, he spends almost the rest of the part, the, the passage, talking to the boneheads. That's the man. Because we don't get it and we have a lot more instruction. I mean, it's obvious. Women are naturally more virtuous and more pious than men. Don't you think that's true? Yes. I think honestly, I think, well, the women are all agree with me. But... <laughs> Guys, we'll go have a beer after this. There's our wounds. But he goes on, he says, husbands love your wives. Now, notice he doesn't say wives love your husbands. Because why? When a woman loves, she gives everything. All right. So he goes on and says, husband, love your wives. Love your wives. Love your wives just as Christ loves the church and delivered himself up for her. So the men are called to talk about submission and service. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and delivered himself up for the church. So that means as a husband, how are you supposed to relate to your wife? What are you supposed to do for your wife? Everything. Yeah. Be willing to be crucified. <laughs> and you will be. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Is that guy said, I'm sorry. No, but it's the idea, the idea true love wants to sacrifice. It wants to give for the sake of the beloved. And so what he's basically saying there, in certain terms, you have to love her so much that you're willing to die for her. And that's why movies like La Vita Bella is really important and really moves us. Or even Braveheart, flawed as it was. Everyone loves the William Wallace character, right? Because he does everything he can to save her. And even though he can't, you know, 
He knows what his role is. He's to protect and he's to nurture. And there is not male chauvinism in this passage at all. Once you read it, what you have is a profound Christocentric teaching. And then he goes on and talks about the husband's role as a soulmate. Because why? That he might sanctify her, cleansing her in the bath of water by means of the word. What he's actually saying is men who tend to be weaker in religious matters and downplay their religious voices, you have an obligation to be a soulmate. You are to help to lead her to holiness. All right? To help the wife get to heaven, just as the wife is to help the husband get to heaven. You know that famous passage that Jesus said, pick up your spouse and follow me? <laughs> you won't fight your wife. Right, the, through the three rings, you've heard that, right? The engagement ring, the wedding ring, and suffering. <laughs> oh, come on, look, you have to, look, if you don't have humor, you're talking about marriage of the family. <laughs> but it is very interesting, he ends that saying, even thus ought husbands also to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Now, that's not extolling us to any kind of sort of self-absorption. But what he's saying is the reason is because they're no longer two, they're one. They are one body. They are one flesh. In loving your wife, you love your very self, a reflex of your own person because the two are so intimate. It is so important when you have a young couple <coughs> coming to prepare for marriage and they're going to their pre-Cana conference, they have to hear the words of St. Paul that marriage is a magnum sacramentum. It is a great sacrament. It is a great mystery. That it will not only symbolize, not just a symbol, but it actually participates in the love that Christ has for his church. And part of the problem that we have spent so much time now, I think, focusing on the role of the woman, that we're now really not talking about the guys at all. And this is causing a lot of confusion in young men. They don't know what the, who they are, what their identity is, and what they're supposed to be doing. You know what I'm talking about? So what does it mean to be a guy now? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a father? What does it mean to be a husband? John Paul was very concerned about that. In Familiars Consortio number 25, number 25, we read as follows. Above all, where social and cultural conditions so easily encourage a father to be less concerned with his family, efforts must be made to restore socially the conviction that the place and task of the father in and for the family is of unique and irreplaceable importance. Isn't that great to hear? Because you can't just leave it up to mom. You just can't leave it up to the wife. It really takes both to raise a family. This is one of the reasons why adoption by people who are in civil unions is totally inappropriate. It takes a mom and it takes a father working together, complementing one another, strengthening one another. And this is crucial. The problem is, is that militant feminism in its most militant form, I'm not saying all feminists teach it, but I'm saying in its militant form, I think it is essentially demonic. Because it takes two things that were made for each other, man and woman, they're meant to be brought together in harmony, and it tries to rip them apart, make them totally in opposition, and fighting and battling one another all the time. And that's not appropriate. That's not appropriate. 
And in our confused world today, we don't talk much about the importance of having mother and father anymore because it's not politically correct. But it's a fundamental truth of the natural order and the supernatural order. Remember, faith and reason teach us this. And they have a common source, as Benedict XVI says all the time. The common source is God. There can be no real conflict between our faith and the truth of faith and the truth of reason. And look at where we're at right now. Right now in the United States, four out of ten children go to bed in a home without a father. Four out of ten. All right? Forgetting God's plan, we now see right now about 50% of marriages in our country end in divorce. And they might be a little higher now. But it's interesting to note, and I'll give you some statistics, 60% of rapists, 72% of adolescent murderers, over 70% of the men in prison don't have a father in their home. <clears throat> and yet, are we really to think that the male role, the role of the father, is really kind of superfluous or accidental when you look at this kind of connection? Daughters with a single parent in a single parent home are 164% more likely to have a baby out of wedlock than when both parents are present. That's astounding. There are, they are 111% more likely to have children as teenagers. And there's only one parent in the home. 92%, and this is probably even more difficult because since the parents are visiting on the children, 92% more likely to end their own marriages in divorce. Right? We have got a real problem here. And we don't talk much about this anymore because it's, it, it touches too many people. And that's the evil of divorce. Divorce is a great evil. Now listen, there are times when couples need to be separated. If there's physical abuse, violence, real hoping, there can be separation. But divorce is a fundamental evil. It's never good for the children. Never good for the children. And I was so happy when we had our recent gathering in, in Rome for the Pontifical Council of the Family. Carl Anderson, who was the Supreme Knight of the Knights of Columbus, gave a very stirring talk on marriage. And he brought up and spoke very powerfully about the effect that divorce is having on the family throughout Europe, but also particularly here in the United States. And if we're not going to admit that this is a real problem, there's never going to be a solution. We've got to make that for the sake of the kids, and a generation ago, people knew this, right? I know a lot of people in my parents' generation, they fought like cats and dogs, but they stuck together for the sake of the children. And in every marriage, in every relation, it's never perfect. There's going to be stormy times. There's going to be difficulties, times when you don't talk, times when you feel estranged. But the beauty of love is you work through that. And if society and the church is supportive of marriage and supportive of that commitment, you've got to maintain it. Otherwise, the holy image of the sacramental union, remember marriage is a sign of the union between Christ and the church. It's implying that Christ can be apart from the church. And we need to keep that sacrament together. Not that it's easy. Look, in my own family, there's been divorce. It's been heart-wrenching. Sometimes with large families, both spouses, Catholics, devout, and things have just been rent asunder. I don't think there's anybody who probably hasn't been touched in some way by divorce and brokenness in families. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. But that doesn't mean that we don't still need to affirm the good. We still need to affirm the good for the sake of the children. Because if we don't talk about this, it's never going to be solved. I mean, we're just going to continue to perpetuate this. 
but it's so important in the formation that the husband-to-be hears that he is supposed to be the imago Christi in the marriage. He is supposed to be the image of Christ to the family, to his wife. What woman would not want to hear her future husband be told that? That you're to be Christ to the children that we will have. You're to be Christ to me. All right? That's a beautiful, beautiful concept. And that the woman, the wife, is to be the imago of the ecclesia, the image of the church, that in the home, she is the mother. And it's such a beautiful, noble responsibility, bringing in new life into the world and then nurturing those souls. And what a great moment it will be for any mother in this room when the kids make it to heaven, right? I mean, the, the mutual complementary, the wife is the image of the church, the husband is the image of Christ. Both of them have a specific role to play in the domestic church. And this is one of the reasons why the church has really emphasized this. Let me give you a quote from one of the church fathers. His name was Tertullian. He ended up bad. But he wrote a lot of good things. He wrote a lot of good things. This was in his earlier phase. Just listen to what he has to say in his little treatise on marriage. And this is a quote. How can I ever express the happiness of the marriage that is joined together by the church? Strengthened by an offering, sealed by a blessing, announced by angels, ratified by the Father. How wonderful the bond between two believers with a single hope, a single desire, a single observance, and a single service. They are both brethren and fellow servants. There is no separation between them in spirit or flesh. In fact, they are two in one flesh. And where the flesh is one, one is the spirit. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> I mean, the church throughout her history, despite what you hear in the popular media, so the church opposes sex and all that kind of stuff, not at all. The church has been the great defender of marriage and human sexuality. As a matter of fact, it's been all the heresies, right? The Gnostics, the Docetists, the Albigensians, the Puritans, who are always trying to pretend as if it's something dirty. What the church is saying, no, it is beautiful, it is noble, and what they don't want to hear, it's holy. It's holy. It's a vehicle through which grace is communicated to the spouses and also to the children. It leads to the birth of new life. And so this is something that's very important. And there are great, even in the secular media now, you might have heard that book, The Case for Marriage, by Linda Waite and Maggie Gallagher. Fabulous thing. You know, there was, they did this big study that they thought was going to end up justifying divorce, where they followed these kids from divorced families for like 20 years, 20 years in the work. And in every single case, they were stunned that every single one of those kids said, I wish my parents had stayed together. Even when there was fighting and bickering, I wish my parents had stayed together. Every one of those children said that divorce, the actual separation of the parents, the breaking apart of the marriage, was the worst thing that ever happened in their life. Now, sometimes that can be a great impediment. It can be an impediment to building a future relationship, but other times it can really strengthen you to say, that will not happen in my family. And you'll do everything you can to make the relationship work out right. So just because it's a horrible thing to go through, we shouldn't sort of despair and say, oh, it's inevitable. It's not inevitable. As Pope Benedict XVI taught us in Valencia, couples should frequently receive the sacraments of Eucharist and penance in order to sustain married love. In a recent Angelus address, he said, of concerning marital love, quote, 
If it is to be authentic, there must be a commitment of the parents to deepen their knowledge of their own faith, reviving its flame through prayer and assiduous reception of the sacraments of confession and the Eucharist. Remember the old Father Peyton quote? The family that prays together stays together. These are fundamental truths. But, you know, we've moved so far away from these things, we've lost our ground, we've lost our point. We've got to come back to what Bennett is saying. You've got to pray together and then assiduously receive the sacraments of confession and Holy Communion. How many of our marriages, if the couple had the habit of praying together regularly, regularly attending Eucharist, at least on Sunday, but maybe even on a weekday, going together to Mass, or frequently going to confession, how many of those marriages would have been saved? I would submit to you a large number of them. And how important it is for the children in the family to see the spouses praying together, that the family does pray together, would be the rosary, chaplet of divine mercy, whatever it might be. One of the things that I found so moving was Father Andrew Greeley. You all know Father Andy Greeley, right? Good writer, I guess. But I don't read those kind of novels. But anyway, he did an interesting study in which he did an analysis as to what parent has the greatest impact on ensuring the religious practice of the child as an adult. And you know what he found out? It wasn't the mother. It wasn't the mother. It was the father. If the child, now that doesn't mean that the mother doesn't practice, the mother practices, but if the child sees the father practice, the father pray, the percentages jump astronomically, all right? Because you need both parents to give the witness, because otherwise if it's just mom, the kids see that and there seems to be a certain disconnect. So it is very, very important to see that. And uh, I myself recall uh, my own father after a long day of work, he always, I mean sometimes he would get home to like 9 o'clock, hard working man, he would always come up to say prayers with us. And we always knew that the car would pull up, now sometimes we were in trouble and we were against pain. That was quite the affirming moment that we wanted. But always would come up and would kneel by our bedside and pray with us. Sunday Mass was always crucial, never miss it, and uh, we would always big march. All of us kids, sometimes in the front pew, which we hated, because back then, you know, women wore hats, my mom had these goofy hats, and we kind of like, <laughs> you know, you're just sort of cringing at this. But it was so beautiful to see, because I remember when, you know, my dad, you know, because you're a young boy, and you're always looking to see, you always see what mom's doing, but you look and see what your dad's doing. And I remember my dad would genuflect, and then you see him go in there, and, you know, the red candle flickering there before the temple, and he would fall on his knees and he would bow his head and he would pray. And then, because I, you know, I just said, oh, this is really important if my dad's doing that. Mm -hmm. Then that's what I should do. And you'll learn those things. But it, see, if we don't talk about this in our catechesis, if we don't bring back popular devotions, for example, enthronement of the sacred heart in our home, praying of the rosary, chaplet of divine mercy, and all of those things that are really the lifeblood of the domestic church. Because what makes it a church? That you pray together. That you're open to the sacramental life of grace. This is the vision of our church. This is the vision of Pope John Paul II. And this is a, this is a huge thing also for Pope Benedict XVI, who has made this a fundamental part of his teaching. 
He recently came in at our gathering in Rome. He came and addressed us all. And the topic we had was grandparents, the important role that grandparents can play. Because see, oftentimes as families break apart and you go through divorces, who's holding things together? It's the grandparents. Oftentimes, it's the grandparents who can still mirror to the child that this type of sacred human love is possible because grandma and grandpa still love each other and are still together. See the point? And so the Pope made a very important point. We said that grandparents are the ones who hand on the patrimony. They have a unique role to play. Society should not marginalize the elderly and especially not marginalize the grandparents because the grandparents have a crucial role in handing on the family tradition and bearing eloquent witness to the sanctity of marriage love and the importance of the family and the passing on of the cultural <coughs> And if some of the grandparents have lost that sense, then he says, it remains very important that there be catechesis given to the grandparents that they can fulfill that role and be aware of the august dignity that they have as grandparents. And we had some talks that were also given by people in African societies where there is much more respect for the elderly and some of the Asian cultures. Today in the modern West, we're so youth-orientated that, you know, as soon as they're having problems, we sort of push them off to the side, all right? But he says they should be key to the family and have a crucial role to play. But all of this is part of that conception of the family as a domestic church, a family which mirrors the love that Jesus Christ has for his church and finds itself a praying in a believing community. In the secular world in which we're living today, we're told that that's not really important or even possible. That our faith tells us this is the truth. Our church is upholding this. This is what we should strive for and seek to emulate. And my hope tonight is all of this made sense to you and you'll do what you can to try to build a sanctuary in your own home or in the home of those that you love to try to strengthen that sense of the church in miniature, which is the family. Thank you very much. second break and then we'll get, come back together for three maybe five questions but as you're formulating your questions in your mind make sure one sentence no breaths in between and a question mark at the end of the sentence all right 60 second break if you gotta go i'm gonna exit stage uh your left or that's the line of water and some cheese that means they all take after us that's your question <laughs> Please feel free to get some uh,
one sentence and a question mark is the end of the thought. <laughs> yes, sir. I had a question here about whether you can explain the difference between, say, the Mormon emphasis and the evangelical emphasis of a family, what seems to be a lack of emphasis by comparison with uh, Catholics. What is the emphasis that the Mormons have and the evangelicals? Yeah, a certain lack of emphasis yeah. on the part of the Catholics. It seems that the Mormons and the evangelicals focus on family and those seem to have a greater emphasis yes. than Catholics do, at least at the present time. At the, at the present time, I don't know if I would have agreed with that maybe a generation ago, because I think there were strong ethnic bonds within Italian family, Polish family, Irish family. We have become sort of a big melting pot mess right now, where we've become so secularized. But that having been said, I think a couple of things. They have a very strong sense of the family. One, because they don't have, this is going to sound almost bad, they don't have the, the sacraments and sort of the way in which we do. And so they are deeply grounded in the Word of God, I think, more than most Catholics are. And you cannot read the Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, the Psalms, or they all love St. Paul. And reading Paul's letters to the Ephesians, in almost all of those pastoral and doctrinal epistles, he's always talking about the family. Husbands love your wives, relationships within the family, and things like that. And because they're deeply grounded in that, they do try to live that authentically. Now, uh, there has been a serious rupture there as well. I think part of the problem was there, I can bring up the C word contraception, where because there's not an explicit con explicit condemnation of that in scripture, a number of those communities have embraced that very much to the detriment of the family, and so they're not immune either. I mean, the statistics are pretty much similar to Catholics between evangelicals, but the ones that are practicing oftentimes seem to have a stronger sense of the family. But I think part of the problem is, is that the church has not really been articulating this very effectively, and I think part of the problem was, honestly, of the descent from humanae vitae. Once you, you, you divorce human sexuality from procreation, then children are second thought, or children are something that you will, and there's a rupture with the created order, and so we become blind. The more you become blind to the natural order of things, the more even the supernatural recedes, and you don't see that as clearly. Whereas I think a lot of even more sort of you know, traditional societies, whether it be in India or elsewhere, place a strong emphasis upon family and having children viewed as a blessing. But now you have situations where because of, you know, pressure put on by governments, they don't want to have children. You actually have a horrible situation, which amazingly no feminists are screaming about, the killing of young girls, baby girls, in China, but also in India. Infanticide of young girls is horrible. I mean, it's, it's a horrible problem in India right now, and of course in China with the one-child policy. But I think because they were more grounded in God's word, there's such an emphasis upon that, that uh, I think they probably do have a stronger sense of the family than, than, than we do presently. And I think, in fact, there's so many people who have been catechized and a great thing a lot of you have never even heard of domestic church. That's, that's a problem. I think we really need to start talking about that. And I think we have moved away from St. Paul because he's considered sort of politically incorrect or dated or something like that. Well, as a matter of fact, this is revealed truth to us. And he's saying fundamental things that are reinforcing the natural order of things. But I think the more we have moved away from that, the more we become blinded. And of course, if we're not living in the truth, we're not walking in the truth, we become blind to those fundamental realities, and that affects the way we live. That's a really good question. I didn't really go to Mormons, but really, Mormons do all the right things for the wrong reason. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Trujillo, Lopez, Lopez Reeves from Colombia. One, I mean, he was at the UN, he was at all the conferences, he fought for marriage, fought against civil union legislation. I mean, he was a real fighter. But I mean, of course, he really, in, in youth, he really was a boxer and everything, but he was tenacious, a very loving man, uh, but he really fought hard for pro-life, you know, against abortion and all these things. And he was, he was, a, he was a real hero. Cardinal Lopez Trujillo, so remember him in your presence. Actually, the funeral is in Rome tomorrow.